I invite you to take your Bible with me. Turn to Genesis chapter 39. That's where we're looking at that chapter today. As we've been moving through this book, we've encountered some challenging stories. Uh, tawdry in some respects, but it's in the Bible. And uh, another not-so-in-your-face not story, but a similar story today. Uh, something challenging. So, uh, I invite you to follow along in your own Bible. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Let's give our attention to God's Word being read. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was, a han was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast his eyes on Joseph and said, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his, mas his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the gate, the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we sang a few moments ago ancient words ever true. And they are ancient because they are before time. And because they are your words, they are unchanging, they are living, they are active. 
And Father, we want that work that your word does. We want it to change us. And we pray in this time of proclaiming this truth that indeed you would do that by your spirit. We need this word. It tells us it's our daily bread and that we don't live by by physical food alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we know that to live forever, we need to hear your word and we need it forever. So grant in this time by your spirit that we would have the attitude of mind and heart, a readiness to hear not what a mere man says, but what you say. So cause your voice to transcend mine and change us. Conform us to the very image of your Son, Father, whose name is Jesus, and we pray it all in his name. Amen. Well, whether it's parenting or your job responsibilities, whether it's your athletic ability or talent for art or music or craftsmanship, the things that you do are owing to some degree to education, practice, and time, right? Classes, degrees, internships, fellowships, hours, of scales on the piano, a guitarist's calluses on his hand, throwing that pitch a thousand times, running, lifting weights, piles of sawdust, projects in the trash or in the fire pit, reams of crumpled paper for the artist or the writer. All decisions made at the favoring one thing over the expense of another, you know To do that thing and to be competent at it, you had to be prepared. There are things that we we choose knowing that they are preparatory. We choose them over other things. There's life circumstances. The decisions of others as well prove to be also preparatory, but we realize that sometimes only in retrospect. Now, thinking of Joseph in our story, perhaps Joseph's own dreams, we read about those in a previous chapter, his own dreams about his own uh, future of being honored by his family, his family coming and bowing before him, seeking his favor. Perhaps those dreams revealed enough of his future to motivate Joseph, but I don't know that he could have imagined what he'd have to go through to get there. God prepared Joseph for a task that included the fact as we look at our text now, that God was the reason for his success. God prepared him for the task, teaching him that testing was essential. And God prepared him for the task with the truth that suffering was to be expected. So those three words will serve as our outline this morning. Success, as it comes from the Lord, testing that is absolutely essential and the expectation that there will be suffering. And as we think about our own lives and whether you're at the vantage point of of looking back as an older person on your life and reflecting or as a younger person looking forward, everything that you have done or will do is in preparation for something that God has in store for you. So let's, let's look more specifically at this text this morning. The first uh, point I want to make from this is that success is a gift. It's a gift. Now, my, uh, my athletic abilities have always been rather average. 
Uh, but I had this friend in Bible college. He was this natural athlete. And that, now the details are way too long ago, but it, it, so the overarching memory I have, so this is back in 81, so it's a while ago. But I remember, and I don't remember what the sport was. I remember inviting him to play a sport. It might have been uh, a racquetball or squash or badminton. I'm not even sure. It's probably some racket sport. It's a sport he'd never played before. I thought, oh, this would be great. Let's, 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 let's play this game together. Well, after a few times playing together, he was just killing me. He was crushing me, just beating me. And this is the kind of guy who, who is just this natural athlete. Not only was a natural athlete, he was brilliant too. He aced all his papers. And when he transferred out of that Bible college to a secular university and got into a very exclusive program, he graduated at the top of his class. Now, there have been times in my life I've looked at that and I've been envious of that kind of overarching skill in everything. And I've thought oftentimes, what is the difference? And it simply comes down to it. Gifting. Gifting. And the important thing to know here is who is the giver? Who's the giver? Now, when I read about Joseph, I, I feel like he's that kind of guy. Now, we're not reading about his athletic ability, but he's certainly gifted. That's we get that sense in the story. His father, Jacob, recognized it. His brothers hated him for it. And even when he's in a really lousy situation, he rises to the top. He just aces everything. Now, we've got to remember, Joseph is a slave. And we're told that Joseph became success, a successful man in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, just, just thinking about the situation as a slave, what slave that you've ever heard about rises to prominence in the household of his master? Any, any reading in history where he's given complete authority over the estate, with the exception of things that are you know, the master's domain, but hands everything over. Well, verse 2 tells us, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And even his master, it tells us in, in verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. And we don't know if his master acknowledged the Lord, but that's what we're told in the text. He's saying, somebody is giving you this ability. He saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And later at the end of the story, as we read, Joseph becomes a prisoner because of a false accusation. But he was successful there too. He was successful even in prison. So much so that the keeper of the prison, again, when have you heard of this, where the keeper of the prison pays no attention to what's going on? Joseph's got it. Why? Again, verse 23, we see the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, and it tells us, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, the scripture makes it clear that Joseph's success was owing entirely to the Lord. The Lord made it succeed. But I want to suggest this that it could not be any other way. There isn't your success which is owing to you in some particular ability, and Joseph's success which is entirely owing to the Lord. No, any success is owing entirely to the Lord. If you have risen above your peers in some way, whether in sports or in management ability, some skill or as a musician, as an artist, it is all 
owing to the fact that God has been gracious to you. And that reality should guard us against any notion of superiority. You all understand the temptation, I'm sure, as I do. When you're good at something, you do well. And you're thinking, they're going to look at me. It goes through our minds. But we have to, in those moments, say, why am I here? Who gave this to me? In fact, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says this. What do you have, this is 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's a quote I remember from Shakespeare, perhaps you remember, I don't know which play it was from. Some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. And the writer, of course, is, is looking at life situations. Some are just in circumstances where they're, in, just, they're born that way. Others work hard and they, they achieve something. And others just get thrown into a circumstance. But I would say this, that anyone who is great is there, whether they're born, whether they're achieved, is because God thrust it upon them. Whatever you have, whatever you've been able to accomplish, whether you're born that way or you achieve it, it has been given by God who is above and over all. It is, you see, it's God who, who chooses your birth family. It is God who designed you with the abilities and passions and opportunities that you have. Even the Apostle Paul, think of him as an example. He described himself as the least of the apostles. Now, we know what he meant in that how he persecuted the church before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. But no doubt, we, we think of the Apostle Paul as standing kind of head and shoulders above all of the other ones, right? His, his intellect, the Apostle Paul's resilience in the face of persecution, his significant contribution to the New Testament, 13 of the New Testament books, and it is only by word volume that Luke's contribution is more. And Paul, the Apostle, was aware of his abilities too. But what does he say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Now that sits well with us. I am what I am, and God's grace is not in vain. But then he says this, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That used to kind of grate at me. Paul recognized that he worked harder than all of the other apostles. But then he says this, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace was effective in causing Paul to work harder than the other apostles. And he claims no personal credit. So just thinking about your own life, if you have been successful in something, consider what the Lord has given you to make that possible. Just consider that. What was essential for your success? Ability, talent, skill. Well, of course, that comes from God. He created you. Knowledge, the ability to learn, the opportunity to learn. Well, that's by God's design too. How about even your ability to discipline yourself? You, you can't even take credit for that. God made you with particular motivations and then put you in a place where, where the influence of parents or mentors others, that that would ignite that desire in you to work. 
So, if success comes from God, and so we trace back to the story, Joseph's or yours, what is it for? What is it for? I know this to be true. Your success is not for you thinking that you're superior to anyone. Certainly not for that. Your success is certainly not for indulging fleshly passions. It's not for that. No, the purpose of Joseph's success in Potiphar's house and then later in prison was to prepare him for a future of managing all of Egypt under Pharaoh. And we'll get to that in weeks ahead, Lord willing. In short, Joseph's success was to fulfill God's purpose. And ultimately, Joseph stewarded, he managed, he used those abilities for the glory of God. And as we think of ourselves living in a fairly prosperous culture in the world, where we have all kinds of opportunities. Maybe you've risen to a, a rank of some place of important leadership, the Air Force. Perhaps your management ability at the company. Perhaps your, your mentoring skills as an individual in, in a volunteer environment or in the church have proven very helpful to others. What's the purpose of any success that you have? What are the purpose of your strengths, your abilities, the opportunity? Whether you're average like me or whether you're exemplary, they are for the glory of God. And let me ask you, do you see them that way? Whatever is before you, whatever success you've had, do you see it for the glory of God? And are you using them that way? God giving success, in the case of Joseph, was preparatory. And God giving success where you are is preparatory. And it is for us to seek the Lord and see where he might use that ability for his glory. Well, the second truth uh, I want to take away from this is that testing is essential. Essential. I chose that word essential. Not optional. Testing is essential. Now, there are some things in the, that we put in the category of essential for staying alive. So essential for life, right? Things belong there, rightly. Food, water, shelter, those things are essential. We get that. There are a lot of other things that we might describe as essential. They're only there because we chose something optional, and then the, the follow-on main, means that something else is essential, right? Uh, but according to the Bible, and really exemplified in the Joseph story, is that testing was not optional for him. We, we need to think of that for ourselves too. Testing was not optional for Joseph. It was an essential part of his preparation. He needed, he needed to be tested so that he would be equipped for a far greater challenge in the future. Now in this text, we can see certainly what happened to Joseph even though Joseph had, had been sold into slavery by his brothers, for a while, everything is going swimmingly. It, it just seems to be going great. I mean, he's still a slave. That's not an ideal situation. But he's been given responsibility. He has the complete trust of his master. He has authority in the household, second only to Potiphar. It's an amazing circumstance. 
And the only thing that he does not have any responsibility over is the food that Potiphar eats and Potiphar's wife. And now we get to the setup. We're told, we're told in the text, verse 6, that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Oh, something's coming. (laughs) Now, rarely in Scripture are we told that a man was handsome. There are a few examples, Saul, David, Absalom. And interestingly, I have no idea why, an Egyptian warrior who was killed by someone named Benaiah. All right, he was handsome. He was a handsome warrior. And now he's dead. But that's the only other occasion. I don't know why we were told that. But here it's pertinent. That Egyptian warrior who died who was handsome, I don't know. But here it's pertinent. Because after a time, and we don't know how long, it just seems that there was a, a progression of responsibility that was given to Joseph. And, and after he's leading in the household, perhaps that's when Potiphar wife, Potiphar's wife sets her eyes on him. She notices him. She wants to have him. Euphemistically, she wants to lie with him. Now, immediately, Joseph recognizes this as sinful. And really, this is the beginning point for understanding how to pass the test. In his mind, he says, this is all kinds of wrong. It's sinful, he recognizes, of course, against Potiphar. What a huge betrayal of trust. If he was to submit to this, if he was to give in to this temptation, it would be a massive betrayal of his master's trust. He says this to to Potiphar's wife. Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Because you're his wife. Get it? Joseph's trying to convince her. But Joseph understands, more importantly, this is a sin against God. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now this test, this was not a one-time proposition. It was an intense, we don't know how long, intense long-term test for Joseph. Potiphar's wife was relentless. Verse 10 tells us, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph resisted. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Before we think about the purpose of this test, I want you to consider why Joseph might have given in. He didn't but we're talking about the kind of arguments in his mind that he had to demolish as he thought about his own well-being, as he thought about his own comfort, as he thought about his own desire. This was a simple appeal to the flesh, lust. You see, before being sold by his brothers, he'd lived near Canaanites. He'd lived there enough to think, everyone's doing it. Probably even his brothers. And we, this was exemplified in the last chapter. Judah had no compunction about seeking out a prostitute. So that Canaanite culture was all around him before he got to Egypt. Everyone's doing it. And isn't that the challenge today, brothers and sisters in Christ? That's just, just how things are. Faithfulness in marriage, wow. It's kind of an outdated idea. Chastity before marriage? That's just, that's kind of dated notions. Everybody's doing it. 
And perhaps even as I thought about this, you know, when Joseph brought a bad report to his father in the previous chapter, maybe it was something of this nature. Who knows? But further to that, he could have reasoned as he's doing this, this work of, of battling with this idea. He could have reasoned, well, I'm, I'm just a slave. What difference does it make? I've got no future. I'll never have a wife. And maybe further to that same argument, if I'm the property of Potiphar, then his wife owns me too. Who am I to fight against her wiles? Again, you possibly can imagine that, that these ideas had passed through his mind. Yet, yet he resisted what was evil. He resisted. So I asked myself, why did the Lord allow this test in Joseph's life? Why does the Lord allow tests in your life and mine? Well, for Joseph, the test forced him to think about his own desires. He had to evaluate it, right? The idea presented to him, he had to evaluate his own desires. Did he want to satisfy his flesh? Did he want to take the easy way out? Or did he want the will of God? And that's really what it came down to. And the decision that he would make would impact the direction of his life. So I think as, it, as the story unfolds that the Lord allowed this particular test in Joseph's life to equip him, to prepare him for later responsibility in Pharaoh's court. Now even though Joseph was falsely accused, he had served Potiphar with integrity. He did not steal anything belonging to his master, including his wife. Now, it's a, it's a test against sin, and the Lord allowed it. And allowing the test, you know, we have to pause here, allowing the test does not mean that God makes sin happen. It does not mean that God tempted Joseph with sin. The Bible makes that very clear. In fact, the, the New Testament letter from James had much to say about sin and temptation and testing. It says this in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. You can't say that, James is saying. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God is not the author of this evil. God does not make evil. Evil is the denial of his way. And human beings are, are in their sin, we all are inclined towards evil evil because we've been corrupted so there's plenty in the world and whether it touches you or not whether that evil is presented to you or not is often owing to god's grace either to block it or not but god creates does not create evil god does not tempt you directly by his grace i'm sure he puts up many roadblocks to temptations and i'm grateful for that but that there are times he doesn't and this time, he didn't put up a roadblock for Joseph. Joseph was an honorable man, but he was not sinless. We've got to be clear on that. And no doubt, the woman's proposition would be played out in his mind. He would have had to battle. He would have had to battle with the idea because he, like the rest of humanity, ever since Adam and Eve, desire is corrupted. 
and it must be contended with continually. We are constantly faced with desire. What are you going to do with it? And what temptation is is simply an appeal to what are corrupted desires, and not one of us is immune. James continues. James 1, 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation doesn't exist apart from desire, and it's corrupted desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, so in other words, you say, yes, I want that. It's now conceived. It gives birth to sin, even if it's still sitting in the mind, even if not being acted on. That desire, when it's conceived, is saying, hmm, I think I'd like that. Now it's been conceived. And that gives birth to sin. And if that's not confessed and repented of and turned from, that gives birth to some external action. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There it is. Now, you might look at this and say, well, is there any hope? Is there any hope for Joseph? Yes, yes, there is. Joseph would ultimately cling to the promises of God. And keeping that in view for him, what it did was, it, I would say, it diminished the appeal of the temptation. Keeping the promises of God in view diminished the appeal of the temptation. And even if it was not entirely clear how he would eventually rise to be in a position of leadership over his brothers where they're honoring him and seeking his help, as his dream revealed, and that vision was from the Lord, so we know that was his future, he still needed to be the kind of person who had integrity. He needed to be an honorable man. Keeping the promises of God in view diminished the appeal of the temptation. That's a strategy for us, brothers and sisters. Keeping the promises of God in view diminishes the appeal of the temptation. And we're going to face temptation. That's not going to change. It's not going to change until Jesus returns. But we have to do battle with temptation. But take heart. Take heart. God gives us everything we need to overcome it. Let me take you to first, uh, yes, first Corinthians. It's First Corinthians 10. No temptation, probably you've heard this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So, where you sit, you're facing temptation. This has happened before. Whatever you're facing, that's happened before. And here's the good news. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's good news in that. When faced with temptation, when faced with that test, that moral test, whatever that might be, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. And that ability is yours, not because it is built into you, but because of the grace of God. You see, Jesus is the way of escape. From that temptation, Jesus is the way of escape. How? Because he went to the cross. Because Jesus took away both the eternal consequence of sin, that's death, that's separation eternally from the life of God, because he took away that consequence, he also took away the power of it 
in the present. So that, so that when faced with temptation, the way of escape is ultimately looking to Jesus and seeing the eternal promises that they're infinitely better than temporary pleasures. That is the strategy. That is the way of escape. So know. Know that it is, it is within the will of God that you will be tested. But God's will for you is that you learn to endure so that you will be mature, so that you will learn to be honorable, and so that you will learn to live in such a way you have everything that you need to live for God's glory. More from James. Earlier in the chapter, he says this. James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that temptation to sin is a testing of your faith. Because in that moment, do you believe in the promises of God? Or are you focusing on a temporary pleasure? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing is essential. Finally, suffering should be expected. Well, we just know this. It's a truism. Bad things happen and people suffer. It is certainly part of life. Now, children learn, or at least they should learn, that as they grow up, sometimes they suffer the consequences of foolish and sinful decisions, right? Disobedient, disobedience brings uncomfortable correction from mom or dad. That's just how it works, right? So staying out past curfew gets you grounded. Simple, simple family economy. Nothing really earth-shattering there. Now, that teenager may whine that life is not fair, but at some point in the future, if they grow and they mature, they recognize that those discomforts were good. That's easy. But of course, there are bad things that happen in life that are not fair. And they have nothing to do with a foolish decision. You might say they are acts of God. That wildfire that wiped out the farm, the lightning strike that destroyed the home, the cancer diagnosis. It's not fair. It's not related to anything. But then there's a kind of suffering that is the result of malicious decisions of others. Suffering because of injustice, where the right is made wrong, where evil is celebrated, where those entrusted with leadership use and abuse others out of envy or jealousy or just because they can. Joseph experienced that kind of suffering. And I would suggest that the lesson here is that it is part of our preparation. It was part of his preparation. It's part of our preparation and should be expected. Now, as the text tells us clearly, Joseph was successful. God ensured with that that he was tested and he passed the test. But that meant that he would also suffer. And let's just recount his suffering. 
Well, initially, I mean, we're introduced here in this beginning of this chapter. He is a slave. He has been sold. He had already suffered his loss of freedom. And that was a malicious act carried out by his brothers. They were envious of him. They were jealous of their father's favoritism towards him. He had been brought down to Egypt, sold to Potiphar. He didn't choose that path. He had no idea what was before him. He went from a son with a stake in the family business to a piece of property for someone else to use and abuse. That's quite a fall. And I can't, I can imagine that, that as he's traveling from Canaan to Egypt, he's thinking, what, what is this? What, what's going to happen to me? I can't imagine that would have been a pleasant journey. But then, of course, once he, he gets established in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife notices him. And then he suffers the loss of his reputation. That is so very painful. When acting with integrity all the time, caring for his master's household. And it looks like Potiphar's wife set the whole thing up so that, so that she could make sure the house was empty. All of the other servants were elsewhere. And he is doing the right thing, resisting her wiles. And he gets accused of the very thing that she intended. What a reversal. Now he has a reputation as a man who has suffered under the loss of self-control. <laughs> suffered. It's almost passive. Who has lost his self-control. A man who cannot control his passions. Who has a gall to take advantage of another man's wife. He resisted. And this is now his brand. And so he loses the trust of his master and his position. He had all that responsibility. Potiphar believes his wife, of course, and Joseph is in prison. Now, 400 years later, Moses is recounting this story, and as said in weeks past, the first five books of our Bible, really the first audience for that were the Israelites about to cross, cross into the land of Canaan. Now they're, they're getting their family history. They're getting, where did they come from? 400 years later, Moses is recounting this very story to the Israelites. And the most recent collective memory that they have is how they suffered as Pharaoh's slaves, making bricks for Pharaoh, even as he rewarded their labor by drowning their sons in the Nile. The overarching reality is on the way to the promised land, suffering is to be expected. And Christian, that's true for us as well. On the way to our promised eternal inheritance, suffering is to be expected. We must endure suffering. And quote this often, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. That's suffering. And that, that suffering, that, that tribulation may be disappointment, loss, grief, physical limitations, disease, incurable disease, psychological pain, depression, anxiety, rejection. Some of you experienced the betrayal of loved ones. Profound suffering or, or persecution simply for standing up for what is righteous. Remember, any suffering that we might endure in this life Know that Jesus suffered the ultimate. Just thinking of, of Joseph again. Joseph and Jesus, the comparison in my mind here. On 
Joseph's way to save, ultimately save his family from the famine that would overtake them in Canaan, he suffered. On Jesus' way to save us from the eternal consequence of our sin, he suffered ultimately. He bore the consequence of our sin so that we could be given life. That is, if you have believed in him. Second Peter 3.18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus suffered so that we could be saved. And so because Jesus died in your place, because he suffered in, in your place, you can endure suffering. You can endure hardship from whatever cause. Jesus suffered a cosmic injustice for you. Joseph suffered an injustice, being accused of the very thing that Potiphar's wife did. Jesus suffered infinitely, bore in his own body the consequence for, for every vile thing that we have thought, said, or done. Every vile thing. Things that we haven't even conceived of yet. Jesus died for it. That injustice is unspeakable. But it was God's choice to cause Jesus to suffer that injustice so that you and I who trust in him could have life. Jesus was rejected by, by those that should have embraced him. His, his good works were, were met with jealousy. Again, he was falsely accused of doing evil and blaspheming God the Father. And that sentence, an unjust sentence of cosmic proportions, condemned to die the death of a cursed criminal. So, so in light of that, in light of that, what do we do? Hebrews 12, here's the exhortation. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need endurance because there's suffering. You don't need endurance if it's not hard, right? So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I added now, but he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the purpose of our suffering? It's preparation. It's so that, so that you develop a taste for something better, something that is eternal. If we don't suffer in this life, we start to think, that's pretty good. Or good enough. But God doesn't want good enough for you. He wants perfect for you. And so that's the purpose of suffering. So that we have an appetite for things that will never corrode, things that will never fade. There is a better day coming. But it's only for those whose sins have been forgiven. If you want your best life now, and I know what I'm saying, 
you don't want your best life then. This better day is for all who've looked to Christ in faith, knowing that without him they are lost. This is what the Apostle Paul says, and I, I think about this often. And the reality is, our suffering, relatively speaking, in this day and age, generally, for many of us, is rather light. Some suffer profoundly. Generally, in this part of the world, it's light. But Paul says this, and understand his suffering, beaten within an inch of his life and shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead. He says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He gets it, and we need to get it whatever suffering you may be facing, it's not even worthy of being compared to the infinite glory that will ultimately be revealed. That is glory. Glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus. That glory. Now, if, if you can't imagine that that would be good, if that's not important to you, oh, I want to appeal to you. Get to know the Jesus of the Bible. Get to know the promises of God. But ultimately, if that's not appealing to you, you, you don't know him. So you need to know him. You need to look to him as the son of God who he is. You need to look to him as the Lord of all. You need to look to him as the Savior who, who gave up his own life for your sins to be given, forgiven. You need to look to him as the one you lay down everything for. You need to look to him as the one who was raised from the grave and guarantees you eternal life if you've trusted him. You need to look to him and do that today. The Apostle Paul again says, this light and momentary affliction, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Well, there's more that could be said and extracted from this story, but I think the overarching message, at least as it struck me, was that success is from the Lord. So whatever you have, whatever you've been given, steward it, use it for God's glory now. And know that when testing comes, know that you need it. It helps you grow in faith. I know the temptation is to whine and, and complain about the test, but the test is important. It is essential. And know that there will be suffering. So expect it and embrace it. This is hard. The scripture calls us to it. Embrace it with joy, knowing that Christ has gone before you. Now in saying that, I'm preaching to myself too. Because my great temptation is to whine about tests and suffering. So I'm preaching to myself too. Expect suffering. Consider it all joy. Because Christ has gone before us. All our ways, every step we take, every circumstance in life, whether pleasant or difficult, 
God is preparing you to bring you to himself so that you will find everlasting joy in the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. The examples that we have in your word ultimately pointing us to eternal glories in Jesus. Father, teach us as your people to steward what you have entrusted to us, successes, opportunities, abilities. Teach us to resist the schemes of the evil one, to understand that the tests of life are preparing us for something greater. And God, to know that even when we are faithful, that there's a certainty that there will be suffering so that we have an appetite for what is eternal and a decreasing dependence on what is only temporal. So form that in us, we pray, for your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.